Welcome back. Um, you know, we've had a busy couple of Sundays the last two weeks, um, so this is our, our first Sunday evening um, service back, but I'm glad to be here. I'm excited to pick back up in the book of Genesis. I've been missing uh, Genesis. Um, so we've done three weeks in Genesis already, and basically, we haven't really gotten anywhere. All we've done is kind of lay some kind of preliminary groundwork, right? We were covering things that maybe only I find interesting. Um, we talked about the, the relationship between science and the Bible. We, we talked about how when rightly understood, um, those two things cannot be at odds with each other because they are both um, revelation of who God is, right? God's general revelation of himself to us in creation, his, his special revelation of himself to us in his word, all right? Those both come from him, and so those both reveal him, and so they cannot um, disagree um, with each other. Um, then we, we talked about um, some of the questions that people today ask often um, in reference to Genesis chapter 1. We, we looked at um, the, the length of the days in Genesis 1. Are they 6, 24 literal um, days? Are they um, undefined longer periods of time? Uh, and we saw that there are strengths and there are weaknesses for both positions. Um, and then related to that, when we looked at the age of the earth, is it 6,000 years old or is it 4 billion years old or is it something in between that really large, um, those two big extremes? And again, we got to remember the Bible doesn't give us a date, right? The Bible doesn't say, and on this date at this time, God created the heavens and the earth, right? So, so we want to be careful about being dogmatic um, about something where the Bible itself is not um, clear. I was tempted this week to do another kind of groundwork, um, kind of tangent sermon. I wanted to spend a while kind of explaining why Darwinian evolution just doesn't make sense as it is currently understood. But again, I realized that that would only interest me. So I'm sparing you guys um, from that message. Maybe we'll do it sometime in the future. Um, so now it's time to really kind of get into the text, right? To start working through Genesis 1 as we kind of tackle this whole book. Um, we did it the first week. And we looked at just the first verse, right? We talked about how, you know, it starts off beginning. It's the first word of the Bible, right? It starts off in the beginning, there's nothing except there was God. And we saw how this God was personal, he was good, he was sovereign, and he was creator. And when we talked about how Genesis 1-1, if you think about it, is the most offensive verse in the Bible, right? Because if it is true, if God exists, if he is the creator of everything, then you are accountable to him, I am accountable to him. And, and that is, that's significant. Because if Genesis 1 is correct, if everything that we're going to look at is correct, then we want to be in, uh, in good favor um, with this God. Right? So this chapter is just foundationally important. Everything starts here in Genesis chapter 1. The whole story of the Bible, right? Everything finds its origin here. Without this chapter, nothing else really makes any sense. So, so look there at chapter 1. We're actually going to go through 2 verse 3, right? The chapter break there is, is in a really poor place, right? You have the first six days, and then the seventh day is there at the beginning of chapter 2. So we're going to work, I think that's all kind of one um, part that should, should be together. Um, and as we work through Genesis, we're going to get to some really big chunks of text that we won't have time to read the whole thing. Um, so this one's a little bit longer, but it's enough that we can read. And I think it would be valuable um, a use of our time to, for me to read the whole chapter, um, and then we'll um, kind of walk through it a little bit. Um, so I'm going to read Genesis chapter 1 for you. It'll be a good reminder for us. It's an excellent, brilliant um, chapter. Um, so Genesis 1, 1, we'll go through 2, 3. You can, you can follow along as I read. This is God's word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, 
And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit and which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give them light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Let's pray real fast. Father, we thank you for this beautiful chapter. We thank you for the beautiful truths in this chapter, Lord. We, we just pray right now that um, you would... Um, speak to us um, through it, um, that you would illuminate your word um, to our hearts, Father, that you would apply these truths um, to us. Father, focus our minds, um, wake us up, Father, wake me up, 
Um, and we would just uh, delight in, in studying and in reading about you and, and hearing about you. And we just pray that we would honor you um, with this time. We ask all of these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so there's just a million things going on in the first chapter of Genesis. Right? We could spend a whole year kind of just covering this first chapter. So it's pretty easy to get it caught up in kind of all the tiny little details. Well, this day and this day, what happened in this day? What about the image of God? All of these kind of different things. So what I want to do is kind of hit the main point. I want to kind of do the overview of kind of this first chapter and see what it is about. I want to see big, broad, kind of main idea of this first chapter of the whole Bible. Right, to do that, let me, let me explain something to you first. All right, I want to talk about what is called hermeneutics. All right? Hermeneutics is something that we all do, even though we don't know what the word means. All right? It's a fancy word, and it comes from the Greek word hermeneuo, which just means to translate or to interpret. Right? So the science of hermeneutics is simply um, interpreting the Bible. Right? That's all we mean when people talk about hermeneutics. It, it is us go, looking, reading scripture, and interpreting it. That, that's what hermeneutics is. That's something that we all do when we read the text and apply it to our lives. And one of the most important rules of hermeneutics is that when we are trying to understand a text, right, we must try and figure out how the author of that text intended it to be understood by the original audience he was writing to. Right? This is kind of one of the first steps in understanding scripture, is understanding what the original author intended um, with this text. In other words, kind of the common Bible study small group question, so, so what do these verses mean to you? Right? That's just a terrible question. It, it misses the point, because I don't particularly care what the passage personally means to you. I care what the passage means, right? what the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, meant by that passage. Right? We don't just bring all of our own interpretations, whatever we want, to the text. No, the text means something. Right? When we study the text, it's, it's to try and figure out what God um, intended for us to understand from that text. Right? That's our goal, to kind of figure out the original meaning, not to kind of breathe our own meaning into the text. Right? And so to be able to do that, it helps us um, to know something about the situation kind of surrounding the writing of the book. Like who wrote the book, why they wrote the book, and the audience that he originally wrote it to. So, for example, with Genesis, right, we think Moses wrote the book of Genesis. Um, and so he must have written it sometime after the exodus of Egypt, right? Remember, you got all of Israel there. They're stuck down in Egypt. Moses, um, God uses Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, right? That, that's the exodus, right? And then there's this 40, a little bit more than 40-year period from when they leave Egypt to when they cross into the promised land. Right, so Genesis, remember, so Moses dies right before they cross over into the promised land. So he must have written Genesis sometime in this kind of 40-year period in the wilderness. Right? Remember they're either kind of, they rebel at one point in the wilderness. So he wrote this either during kind of that 40-year wandering or kind of right before it. And this will better help us understand the point of Genesis chapter 1. Because Israel has just fled Egypt. Right? And as we've seen in Sunday school, kind of the last couple weeks, there was just a lot of uncertainty and a lot of fear um, with these people at this time. They're, they're in the wilderness. They have no homes. They are hungry. They're, they're struggling to trust God and his plan. They're, they're getting ready to enter this promised land that, that is filled with all these great and mighty nations. And they also just kind of left the nation with all these different gods. They're about to go into another land that has all these other different gods. Right? This is kind of the context into which Moses is writing. 
So kind of what he is intending to do in part is he is writing to teach and to comfort Israel in the midst of their uncertain transition from Egypt to um, the promised land. Right? So he's writing in part to combat all these false worldviews around them. He's writing to comfort them. Right? And he's writing to teach them about this God. So from this perspective, kind of from the in- original intention of Moses, right? Genesis was probably Genesis one was probably never intended to answer some of the questions we wanted to answer. Right? It's not primarily about science. It's not primarily a step by step account of how exactly God created. Right? It obviously leaves out lots of stuff because that wasn't Moses's original purpose. So we can't try and force our own stuff into um, this chapter. Look at the second day. I want to make a point here with the second day. Look at verses 6 through 8 as an example. In the ESV it says, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. Now listen, the, the translators of the King James Bible did almost everything right, right? It's a really good translation. But this is one spot where they really messed it up, right? They, they, they translated the word that we use there as expanse, they translated as firmament, right? And firmament comes from a Latin word. They, they were translating from the Latin text here, firmamentum, right? And it's just a completely different word. And so this translation of it and kind of many Christians' failure to interpret Um, This passage, as Moses intended it, has led to a lot of unnecessary scorn and ridicule from non-Christians. All right, so think of the word firmamentum. What does it mean? What does it imply? Right, it sounds like something really hard or or solid. Right, that's that's kind of what this thing must be. So, so fundamentalists have taken this mistranslation. They've taken it way too literally, and then they try to argue that when God kind of first created the earth, right, He made this like weird, hard, solid dome kind of outside around the earth. And there was like water resting up upon the earth and sometimes it would open up and that's how rain would come. And so when there's the flood, God just opens up this dome and that's how all the water comes. Because they're trying to explain this, this firmament, right? How does this hard thing make any sense? What does that mean, right? But listen, it's just from common sense, this is obviously ridiculous, right? The, this illustrates why it's so important to interpret the text, how the author means it to be interpreted. Moses isn't trying to give us a detailed step-by-step explanation of everything, right? He's not trying to give us a scientific description of every single aspect of creation, right? Moses, when he writes here, is using what is referred to as phenomenological language, which just means, um, it is just kind of a way that we describe things as they appear to us, right? That's all it means. So we do this today. Right? We say we want to get up early, we want to go out to the beach, right? And we want to just go see the beautiful sunrise, right? We, don't, we know that the sun isn't literally rising, right? The sun sits still. The sun doesn't move, right? The, sunrise, the sun appears to rise as the earth rotates around the sun. And as we turn back to face it, it looks from our perspective as if the sun is rising when in fact we are the ones that are moving, right? It's phenomenological language. It's, just, it's, it's how it appears to us. It looks like the sun is rising. Well, that's exactly what Moses is doing here in the text. The Moses, what he is doing is he's describing what the sky looks like to him from his perspective. Right, so the ESV translates the word expanse. And look at verse 8. It tells us exactly what the expanse or the firmament is. It says, and he called the expanse heaven. 
right? And the Hebrew word for heaven also just means sky, right? So he just says, and he called the expanse the sky. That's all Moses is doing here. He's describing the sky or, or the atmosphere. It is where the water is in the clouds, right? As the water builds up up there, as it gets too heavy, right? It, it, it falls and it rains, right? So the water in the sky is separated from the water on the earth, right? It's really that simple. But the point that I'm trying to make is that we have to let our interpretation of a text be determined by the author's original interpretation of the text. So with Genesis chapter 1, Moses isn't trying to tell us specifically how and when um, the earth was created. Right? His focus is on the who of creation. Right? God is the focus of Genesis chapter 1. So that needs to be our focus when we come to this text. Moses writes about God and his act of creation to teach Israel, right? Remember, to confirm them in the middle of this really uncertain period of transition in the wilderness and to kind of oppose the false religions around them, right? That's what he's trying to do with this chapter. That's the context into which he is writing Genesis chapter 1. Right, the last two weeks in Sunday school, last week and this week, we looked at 1st and 2nd Samuel. Right, where we saw how the main idea of these books, originally 1st and 2nd Samuel, just one book, right, we split them up um, later, when we saw that the theme of these, these books is that of kingship. Right? And kingship is an extremely important theme throughout Scripture. But do you remember what God says to Samuel when the people come to him and demand a king for the first time? It's in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7. Right? God tells Samuel to listen to the people. He says, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Right? Israel's demanding a king was such a bad thing because God was the king of Israel. So their demanding another king was their rejection of him as their king. And just as we're going to see in two chapters, in Genesis chapter 3, the Israelites um, in 1 Samuel reject God as their king. Right? And that, ultimately, is what Genesis 1 is about. Genesis 1 is about the king. Right? That's who we're introduced to right off the bat. He's the actor. He's the main character. It's about the good and sovereign king. And what we see him doing in Genesis chapter 1 is building and filling his kingdom. Right? So kind of a big main idea, Genesis chapter 1, if you kind of you know, skip some of the minor different details, is you have the king building and establishing and filling his kingdom. Right? And this, this resonates with us today, even in our kind of age of democracy. Listen, we're still just drawn to and fascinated by the idea of kingship. Right? Every time I go to the grocery store, I see another picture of the new royal baby, George. I think they just took one where they're all naked for some reason. I'm like, why is this in a magazine in the grocery store that I'm looking at? This is really weird. I just want to check out and there's all these, these things around you. Right? So you have Queen Elizabeth, you have her son Charles and William, and now George, right? These people aren't actually really royalty, though, right? If you know anything about them, they don't actually have any real power. They don't have any real authority. They're just, they're just figureheads. They're not actually real kings and queens. Yet, people are still obsessed with them. And I think that is in part because there is something about the idea of a king that we are drawn to, right? Just look at a Disney movie. I think every Disney movie ever made is about a king in some way or another, right? 
There's just something about the idea of kingship that we are attracted to. And I think this goes all the way back to creation. Because it is here in Genesis 1 that we are introduced to the king. Now sure, the specific word king is not used in this chapter. But elsewhere in the Bible, in many places, God is referred to as the king. Right? He's, he's done so in 1 Samuel as we just saw. Psalm 47, 7-8 through 8 says, For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his throne. God is the king, all right? And he is the king over all. And that's what we see in Genesis chapter 1. We see him create all. He creates the universe. He creates light, the sun, the stars, the earth, the water, plants, animals. He creates us, man and woman, in his image and likeness. He creates all. Thus, he is the king over all, right? This all is his. And there are three kind of things that I want to draw out um, from the idea of God as king. First, that comes along with the idea of being a king is the fact that God is in control, right? By creating everything by the word of his mouth, we are just confronted right away with God's great power, right? Nothing is too hard for God. What he wants to do, he does. His plans cannot be thwarted. He accomplishes whatever he wills. God controls nature, history, life and death, human decisions, salvation, everything. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who has made the heavens and the earth by your great power. Nothing is too hard for you. Psalm 135, 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Right? God as king, as the all-powerful creator of everything, has control over everything. Right? So the first thing, king equals control. Second, as king, God has authority. Right? As king and creator, God has the right to tell us, his creatures, what we must do. This is kind of what being a king is. Control, the first one, is about might. It is about the power. Um, authority is about right. right. Control means that God makes everything happen. Authority means that God has the right to make everything happen. He has the right to be obeyed. And therefore, we all have the obligation to obey him. God commands the light to exist, and it listens. God speaks and it happens. As our king, God has the right to command us. But thankfully, he is a good king and he commands us for our own good. He is not a tyrant. He does not wield his great power and authority at the expense of his people, but for the benefit of his people. So God, by creating everything in Genesis 1, has authority over everything. So that's control and then authority. And third, kind of wrapped up in the idea of God as king, is God's presence with us. All right, we're going to see this one more clearly in Genesis chapter 2. All right, in Jeremiah 7.23, God says, I will be your God and you shall be my people. He says the same thing to Abraham in Genesis 17.7. He says the same thing to Israel under Moses in Exodus 6.7. He says the same thing to us, the New Testament people of God in Revelation 21.3. Right? God does not just create and just leave things alone. Right? God is not just some kind of uncaring king out here serving himself, but he is a kind and loving king that is present with us. So God, as king, has control, authority, and presence. 
And in Genesis 1, we see him establishing his kingdom and filling his kingdom. And all of this would have been a great comfort to Israel in the midst of their wandering and uncertainty. Because God is in control, right? God is the king. If he created everything, we can then trust him to take care of us. So Moses is trying to teach the people and he's trying to comfort the people at the same time. And so we should let this passage teach us and comfort us as well. If God is powerful enough to create the universe with a word, if he can hold the stars in the palm of his hand, then is he not powerful enough to take care of you in kind of whatever difficulty you may be facing? Is this not a God in Genesis chapter 1 that we can trust, right? Is this not a God that we should allow to banish all of our worry and fear and insecurity? If the God of Genesis chapter 1 is for us, Who can be against us? All right, this is not a chapter about science. This is a chapter about our God. And we should cherish and and delight in the great truths of this chapter. Because the king that we see in Genesis chapter 1 is a God that we can trust. So don't miss the significance of God the king creating us, his people. Right? That's the idea. That's, that's why we're drawn to the idea of a good king. We are created for relationship. Right? We're going to see that more clearly again in the next chapter. God creates us to be in relationship with us. And, and we're designed to be in relationship with authority. Good authority, but, but authority nonetheless. And, and this is why we need government. This is why government is a good thing established by God, because we are created to be under authority, initially created to be under God's authority. But when we reject that authority, as we're going to see in Genesis chapter 3, right, we still need something, right? We're sinners. As we talked about this morning in church, we're not relatively good people, right, who can just kind of take care of ourselves. Like if, you know, if we were just off on an island with nothing else, like everything would go really well, right? If you think that's true, just go read the book, The Lord of the Flies. It doesn't work. Like everything goes terribly. It's anarchy and chaos, right? We do not function correctly without authority. That's what the fifth commandment is about. God commands us to honor our father and mother. It, it is a command for us basically to be submissive to authority because we need authority. I need authority. It it is for our good. Now, listen, of course, authority and government and all these things are misused and abused, but abuse does not negate proper use. Just because some people get it wrong doesn't mean that we don't still need it. We need authority over us. We need a king. We need to be in a kingdom. Right? But then as you start to work through the Old Testament, right, as you start to kind of look back at history, as you look around today, it quickly becomes clear that none of the kings or none of the things that stand in the place of kings, like a, a democracy today or, or a president, none of the things that are filling the role of king can quite cut it. Right? None of them are that great. Actually, all of them are pretty terrible if you go back and look at just the history of human authority and of of human government and of human rule, right? It always goes poorly. Someone has a new brilliant idea. Well, listen, all right, Marx is thinking, he's like, all right, this, you know what? The problem is the oppression of the government on the poor. The problem is, you know, private property, right? The problem is all these things that he comes up with and he thinks, you know what? We need a new authority system. 
right? We're going to distribute everything else to the people. We're going to come up with socialism, and it's this new grand idea that's going to fix everything. But then the 20th century happens, and it's just a disaster, and millions of people are killed as a result. Millions of people suffer, right? We keep trying to come up with all these different ways um, to, to kind of replace God's authority, but none of our ways work. Right? So just our failure, the failure of all the kings in the Old Testament, the failure of all the kings um, that we see back in history and all the governments, right, should point us to the fact that we need something else. Right? There's all of these authorities, but none of them do what they're supposed to do. And that is then what basically the New Testament is about. Right? The themes of king and kingdom run throughout the Bible and then they culminate together there in Jesus Christ. As we'll see in two weeks, after God graciously establishes kingdom and places us in it as his representatives, right? He, he puts his representatives out in the world in, as his image. We, we know that from, from ancient Near East, kind of we know that kings, what they would do is they would, if they had a land that was really far away, right? Some of them had these big kind of empires. You know, they couldn't actually get out. Travel wasn't very quick back then. No airplanes. So what they would do is in those lands is that they would leave an image of themselves in those land, right? You see what they're doing. That, that image kind of reminds the people out there of who is theirs and who is in control and of them. So what we see here in Genesis 1 is God placing an image of himself in the land, in the garden, in his kingdom, right? And that image is us, right? I think that's really kind of fascinating. Moses is, is playing off of something here that, that, that was happening in the cultures around him. God takes an image of himself, us, and he places it down in his kingdom to, to represent him. But what happens? We do a terrible job of representing him, right? We, we reject him. We, we ruin the kingdom. We get ourselves kicked out of the kingdom and we separate ourselves from the king. But gracefully, God does not give up. He is faithful to his kingdom, to his creation. He decides to restore his kingdom. He decides to send the king that we have all been looking for and all been longing for. Right? Remember all the way back in the first chapter of Mark, when Jesus explodes onto the scene in chapter 1, verse 15, he proclaims, the time is fulfilled. Right? That just means the time has come. And he says what? He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. It, it has arrived. The kingdom is here with me. Repent and believe in the gospel. This was the message of Jesus. It was about God's kingdom. And Luke eleven twenty, he says to the Pharisees, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So remember, remember we talked that authority, right, comes along with the fact that God is king, right? But in Matthew 20:18, what do we see Jesus doing? We see Jesus claiming that authority for himself. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then at the very end in history, in Revelation 17, 14, we see that Jesus himself is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. He's called the same thing in Revelation 19, 16. Jesus is the king and he has God's authority. And he also has God's control. Revelate Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says that all things are created through Jesus and that in Jesus all things hold together. Right? We talked about this a while back, that Jesus himself is, is sustaining and, and holding together the universe. Now that is power, 
And that is control. So Jesus has the authority. Jesus has the control. And then in John 1.14, we're told that Jesus takes on flesh and dwells among us. Matthew 1.23, we're, we're told that Jesus is going to be called Emmanuel, which just means God with us. So Jesus is God present with us. So Jesus has the control and the authority and the presence. Jesus possesses all of the attributes that God the Father possesses. Because Jesus is God. Jesus is the King. Come back to His kingdom. Come to rescue us. But when He comes, remember, He, he does not come the first time like we expect a king to come. He doesn't come with a sword. He doesn't come conquering. He doesn't come ruling. He comes as a great servant. He, he, he comes to die. And this is why Jesus is so much better than any other king. We, we talked this morning about 2 Samuel. Right? The very end of 2 Samuel, it, it ends on a weird note. Right? Remember, 2 Samuel is all about David's kingship. So in the first 10 chapters, it's all really good things that David does. The next 10 chapters are all really bad things that happen to David. And then there's, that David does, not happens to him. Then there's a, like two kind of good chapters. And then the whole book closes on a really negative note again. You remember what happens in, in 2 Samuel 24. David's kind of getting towards the end of his life. And what does he do? He, he takes a census of his, of his military power, basically. He counts his soldiers. He wants to know how big and powerful and mighty his army is. And this is apparently, this is, this is a sin, right? He recognizes it's a sin because he is, what he's doing is he's finding his security and his comfort and his safety in, in his numbers and in his men and instead of God, right? He, he, confe- he realizes it. He confesses his sin. God comes to him. And what does he say to David? He says, listen, this is a great sin. I'm going to punish you for this great sin, right? Sin demands um, a retribution. But what does God do? He comes to David. Remember, David is the king of the people. He is the representative of Israel before God. And God comes to this king, to this representative, and says, I'm going to give you three choices. There are three things um, that that I'm going to do, and you pick one of them. And you can kind of pick the outcome. Two of those things involve the people suffering mightily, right? The third one of those things involves David himself personally suffering mightily. And so what does David, the king of Israel, the representative of his people do, right? He chooses one of the things that leads to great suffering for his people, right? David sins and David the king sins and the people suffer for David's Sin, right? Because David was not a good king and he was not a good representative, right? But Jesus comes and does the exact opposite. Jesus comes, he is the king, he is our representative, and what he does is he suffers for our sin, right? The people suffer for David's sin, Jesus, our king, our representative, suffers for our sin. He is the only good king. He is the one that comes to stand in our place and suffer and die for us. This is why he is so much better than any other king. He's the king that comes and stands in the place of his subjects. We, we rebel against him. We reject him. We build up this great debt that we cannot pay, that, that we can only pay eternally with our lives in hell. But he comes and he takes that debt on himself. 
He stands in our place and the king dies for his subjects. That is a king that you can trust. And this is ultimately what Genesis is setting the stage for, right? God's great story of redemption, the the return of the king and the reestablishing of his kingdom in the New Testament makes no sense without Genesis chapter 1. So we should allow this chapter to, to greatly comfort us because it is a chapter about our great king. It is, a, it is about that great king who, who, is, who is in control, who has authority, and who is present with his people. It's about him building, establishing, and filling his kingdom. So he created all, he is king over all, and he is good. Right? And we see that ultimately displayed to us in Jesus Christ, especially at the cross. All right, so that's Genesis chapter 1. And next week, or next time, we'll, we'll turn to Genesis chapter 2, and we'll kind of touch on a different kind of take on the creation account. And we'll see a lot more of that third aspect of God's kingship, of his presence with his people in his kingdom. All right, so, so let's, let's close in prayer as, as we finish up. Father, we thank you um, that you are a great king. Um, we thank you that you are not just powerful and, and mighty and in control, Father, but that you are also good and kind and, and loving and merciful to your people. So, Father, we, we thank you um, that you do not wield power as, as other kings wield power. We thank you that you wield your great power um, to serve us and to save us and, and to bless us. So we thank you that, that Jesus Christ possesses all of your attributes and your qualities, that he is just as in control, that he has just as much authority, and that he comes to be present with us and, and to save us and to stand in our place. So Father, I thank you um, that you are the king. I thank you just for how you have constructed scriptures and how you have kind of tied all of these things together, how you work um, from beginning to end to kind of reveal to us um, your son, Jesus Christ. So I thank you that we can even get kind of hints and foreshadowing and types of kind of what Christ is going to be like, um, even in Genesis chapter 1, even from the very beginning. We thank you that just in two short chapters in Genesis 3 that, that you kind of, you hint at the gospel. You, you promise that you're going to send one who, who's going to crush and defeat our enemies um, for us. So Father, we thank you that you are so in control, even from the very beginning, that you knew what you were doing, that you were working toward the great revelation of your son, Jesus Christ. So we thank you for saving us um, through him. We thank you for loving us um, when we were unlovable. Again, I thank you for this day. I just thank you for your great grace and mercy that you have displayed to Woodside Community Church. Um, I thank you for these people and their desire to to worship you and and to to learn more about you and to grow in you. And I pray that that's something that we could do in this place um, together by your grace and for your glory. Bless us as we go from here. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, thank you guys. Um, You are dismissed. First time ever. Stopped a little... I'm um, early. <laughs>